0: Salwa Bona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're going to take a look at an area informally known as the Agulhas Triangle. It embraces the southernmost tip of Africa, including the district of Cape Agulhas and its ward, Elam and then stretching inland and northeast to embrace Bruce Jack's farm, The Drift, and David Trafford's Sain Estate in the Ward of Malhas. So it's a diverse area, but as we'll hear, the area's producers have a lot in common, including a pioneering spirit, windy vineyards, and excellent, distinctive wines. And while it is a newer wine-growing area, with most of its vineyards only planted this millennium, it has a deep history of grape-growing.
1: The missionaries that came to this part of the world were called the Moravian Mission. And they were originally from Germany, and they had to have grapes for what they called Nachmalwein, which means night service wine in their Christian services. So they had to grow grapes. And so they worked out very quickly where you couldn't grow grapes. And one of the reasons why a lot of them settled in the Agalas Wine Triangle, and in fact the model Moravian mission in the world, was in a place called Hananda, which is about 50 kilometers north of us on the other side of the valley. That was the model Moravian mission station. And then there was one in Ilham as well, et cetera. So they set themselves up where? Now, what does it mean to be able to grow grapes? Very practically, you need water. You can't have frost. You've got to have enough sunshine. You've got to have the right sort of um, heat units, et cetera. So you've got these guys who've been doing this from the late 1700s or mid-1700s. So we've got all this evidence to show that grape growing has been going on in the valley forever. Oh, yeah, forever. <laughs> in inverse of comments. My name is Bruce Jack. I'm a winemaker. I live on a farm in the Agalis Wine Triangle at the southern tip of Africa. And I have a, a couple of interesting projects in the wine industry. I make wine globally under the Bruce Jack label. So I make wine in California, in Chile in Spain and in South Africa at this stage. I make wine off my own estate and then I have various other interesting projects. My grandfather on my father's side was a cider maker. So I make cider in Ireland and in South Africa. I'm a fermentation geek, I'm a wine nerd. I'm one of the wine tribe and I absolutely love what I do. Bruce was
0: one of the first modern day growers to plant grapes in the area thanks to changes within the wine industry after the end of apartheid, and a father who was very specific about where he wanted to live.
1: With the release of Nelson Mandela, a lot of the structures that have been put in place by the apartheid government were all slowly being dismantled. The wine industry was controlled by an organization called the KWV, which had been set up primarily to take care of excess wine but also to take care of quality to a certain extent. And the KWV started unbundling itself because it was really a quasi-governmental organization. And, of course, with the change of guard, everything was looked at. And one of the things was there was an opportunity for a lot of the independent winemakers in South Africa to say, okay, guys, what we've got to do here is reinvent this industry by taking the best bits of what happened under the KWV's watch And then open it up for entrepreneurial opportunities, for quality improvement opportunities, to get rid of some of the dogma and the politicized decision-making that had taken place before. And in that process, areas which hitherto had been off-limits to grape growing opened up. And one of them that reopened was the Gallus Wine Triangle. My father was born on a farm, an apple cider farm up in the old Transvaal at a place called Henion Clip, which is just outside of Gauteng. And they became an architect and an urban planner. He, I think, always wanted to retire, in inverted commas, because, of course, people like my father who really retire because they've always got their sketchbook, right, and their pen and they're always doing drawings. Um, But I think he just wanted a place to do that outside of town, really, and he wanted to live on a farm, And he gave me a, a brief, which was that he had to be within an hour of an international airport. He didn't want to see his neighbor's lights. He didn't want to hear the road. He wanted to be able to see the stars at night. And he wanted to be able to farm with a whole lot of different things. And of course, I was allowed to plant some grapes. So my number one priority was try and find somewhere around the world where we could do something different, where we could swim a little bit against the stream, where we could be... A pioneer, but not completely stupid in terms of risk-taking. And where the combination of soils and climates would allow us to craft wine that was unique in that paradigm. So we looked at some exciting places. Obviously, I've got an Australian winemaking degree. So I ended up looking in the Adelaide Hills, was one of the places that I was very excited about. The Sonoma Coast, just north of Jenner the mouth of the Russian river just up on the uh, highway one up in the highlands there next to places like flowers. It's just a a very, very special place to me. I feel really at home there. I looked in Oregon. I spent a little bit of time in Argentina having a look around and it was quite fascinating. I went around Europe as well a little bit, but I needed to be somewhere that I could afford. So France was out in those days. We are talking 30 years ago. And France was so on top of the world and it was was impossible, A, to get in and B, buy any kind of land. And I landed up thinking, you know what, South Africa is not such a bad place to be. We have our challenges, but they are manageable. And one of the biggest problems with that was plant material and leaf roll virus 3. But that's manageable, right, if you do it properly. And the other thing about South Africa, and we're talking the early 1990s, was that we were in the process of witnessing the most extraordinary Miracle, the social rejuvenation project led by, it's not just Nelson Mandela, of course, but he's the pivot around which it's fun, but amazing people like Desmond Tutu happened to have confirmed me and who I was very moved by. And I just thought I'm African. We're in probably the most exciting time of anyone's life from a social rejuvenation perspective. And I wanted to be part of that as well. So, We landed up an hour out of Cape Town International Airport, where you can't see your neighbor's lights. The stars are beautiful at night. And of course, it's the most exciting place to grow grapes, where you can do something which we think is almost impossible to do anywhere else in South Africa because of our location. We bought the land when everyone was running away. So it was a time when land was incredibly cheap, because of course Mandela had been released and a lot of... People who own farms, particularly marginal farms, if they could sell, they sold. And they sold at whatever price they could. My dad's an architect. We were never particularly well off. I never went on overseas holidays or any of those sort of luxuries. I had a good education and I had an opportunity because the circumstance lent itself that we were able to pick up some of the most extraordinary land in the world at rock bottom prices. And it's crazy to think what we paid for it at the time, but... The reason we got our little farm, which is small, it's so only 200 hectares. The two neighbors on the west are both over 700 hectares and the one on our right is in fact 10,000 hectares. We're the smallest farm on the mountain. And the reason we were able to pick this up both so cheaply, but also just because it was available was because it was the worst farm in the Overberg. And when I say the worst farm in the Overberg, Overberg is traditionally a wheat and sheep farming. There's a bit of cattle as well, but it's basically wheat and sheep. So it's dry land, which means there's very little water to irrigate. If your farm happens to be situated next to one of the rivers, you're fine. And if you're up against the mountain, you're fine because you get runoff from geographical rain. But the reality is that it's a dry valley because we're in a dry continent. And of course, the closer you are to the mountain, the more the soils that you are farming in based on what's recently been eroded off the mountain this is a sandstone granite quartzite with a little bit of limestone mountain and so what you're planting is very different from 5 or 6 kilometers north into the valley where you've got a lot more clay, a lot deeper soils, right up against the mountain the soils are pretty shallow you've got a lot of shale you've got a lot of sandstone, you've got a lot of quartz you've got a lot of rock Etc. So the soils for a wheat and sheep farming are hopeless, and in fact the only crop that ever did well historically on our little farm is onions. Famous for its onions, um, which is a good thing to know because when you grow onions organically, uh, one of the things you do is when they're ready to be picked, you pick them up and you lay them on the ground, and that's when if you haven't sprayed them to death with chemicals and destroyed your soil in the process, what happens is that you get exactly the same funguses as vineyards get. So when I learned that this had been a famous onion farm, and in fact, it's mentioned in quite a few books, even though it's a small farm, people went there not only for onions, but the farmer that farmed just after the Second World War actually grew onion seed, which was even more valuable and even more prone to diseases, funguses, and rot. And when I heard that, I suddenly got very excited because, of course, something in the climate must mean that you can grow grapes in such a way there that you can get away with non interventionist as organically as possible regenerative viticulture, which is difficult in a lot of other places for various reasons. And the reason on our farm is a wind. And it's a cool wind. So one of the things that funguses and damaging bacteria and things need is a a certain temperature range. And it's because a lot of them enzymatically operated. And what that means is that you've got to be between 19 and 25. And you've got to have a high moisture content at those temperatures. Now, there are some places where you've got a much higher moisture content, but you've got cooler temperatures. So you don't get the sort of rot. And vice versa. You can have very dry places with cool temperatures. But there's this beautiful balance on our farm, which is, again, circumstantial and pure luck, which is that you've got these cool, cool temperatures when there's wet. So you seldom have this interaction of humidity and temperature at the same time, which is the danger zone, which is like 20 degrees and 78, 80% relative humidity. That's when things go wrong.
0: Even further south, the Ward of Elam is home to the largest concentration of wineries in the Agalis Triangle.
2: It started off very quietly in 1997, with a small vineyard that was planted with a few producers, and only in 2001 it was declared as a new wine ward. And with that came the production of the first wine of origin, Sauvignon Blanc. My name is Konrad Flock. I am the winemaker at Strandfeld Vineyards. Strandfeld Vineyards is the southernmost winery and vineyard in Africa. We are situated between Cape Agaras, the southernmost tip of Africa, and the small hamlet of Elam. Our closest vineyards are situated only 7 kilometers from the ocean, and the other bulk vineyards are 10 kilometers from the ocean. It was a land in Sauvignon Blanc that really had the wine industry in South Africa said, wow, this is something new and something special. And that captured my mind way back then. I was still a winemaker at Dalam in Stellenbosch, and I really thought, wow, this is something different. And through the years, the Ilham Wine Ward was something special, but it never grew into a huge production area. And the main reason for that is the water sources here. The source of fresh water that has got irrigation potential is limited. It's limited to around the springs, around the small hamlet of Ilham. And then... We are on the other side of the same mountain where the springs come out. So we also have a limited amount of fresh spring water and perennial rain water in the winter. So we catch it up into dams. There's a lot of good soil in the area, but without the right irrigation water, this area is limited to the water licenses that we've got allocated to this area. So 50 years from now, or 30 years from now, I don't see this area growing into more than a 1,000 hectares of vineyard because of that limitation, just a few kilometers inland from ocean. Brantfeld got started when a few like-minded friends decided way back in 2001 to purchase a piece of property with a very strong maritime influence. And they looked all over the southern Cape, and they crossed a piece of land that was situated in the Elam Wine ward that had good irrigation water, and then they managed to purchase the land. When they started to plant vines in 2002, they focused on cool climate right, the Sauvignon Blanc Semillon, and on the red side, Shiraz and other roundies like Grenache, Moverdre, Pionier on the white side, and also on Pinot Noir. That's what their main focus was way back in 2002, 2003. Most of the vineyards were planted when we started the winery. I myself was still, at that time, a winemaker in Stellenbosch. I started here in 2004 as winemaker, and I made the first wines from our own vineyard in the vintage of 2005.
0: The third, easternmost corner of the Agalas Triangle is represented by the Ward of Malhas, which is even younger than Elam.
3: I'm David Trafford from Seine Winery in Malhas.
4: I'm Shola Bosman from Seine Winery, and I'm the winemaker and run the day-to-day around here.
3: Started the winery, planted the vineyard here back in 2004. And increasingly, Charlotte basically looks after everything. In 2000, my wife and I came to the area for the first time and just noticed these incredible soils, these round pudding stone soils. That reminded me of the Chateauneuf-du-Pape region in the Rhone Valley in France. And I just thought it would be really amazing to grow grapes here and so it started off as an idea a uh, bit of a wild idea and <laughs> we asked a few friends if they would be interested in helping us financially and they said yes so we got started so it really started off almost at a bit of a whim but the more we looked into it it seemed really feasible and started off as a small project and i mean it's still small Initially, we planted about 13 hectares, and now we have 22, 23 hectares.
0: While each spot in the triangle has its own characteristics, there are some things in common.
3: The growing conditions here, we between the winter and summer rainfall area. It's about 15 kilometers from the sea, so it's heading more on the Indian Ocean side, so it's not quite as cool as, say, Elam, for example. But it's a moderate climate in terms of temperature, slightly warmer winters, but quite moderate summits. you don't get the sort of very hot peaks in summer or a little less. You get that sort of cooling breeze. But it's not as such a cool climate by international standards. It's still quite warm. And with these soils that are reflecting heat, we have the vines as bush vines. It's very much a Mediterranean climate with mild kind of temperatures and quite windy. That's also quite a stress factor. The rainfall is about 350 millimeters a year, so really low. We do get a little bit of irrigation water from the Breda River. We're in the tidal zone. We're about 70 meters above the river, so it's, it's not a floodplain at all. It's a kind of lifted plateau. So especially for the young vines, for establishing the planting, we can water them to get them going. We can't really irrigate as such. We can just give a little bit of additional water to help them grow. So it's quite a marginal climate. And we don't expect and we don't really get more than three or four tons a hectare. So extremely low yields, which gives us natural concentration.
1: What separates, differentiates, and I think gives us a different set of tools from other terroirs, other parts of South Africa, is this combination of altitude and proximity to the ocean. In a way, that is the most important thing in terms of differentiation, not in terms of quality, but in terms of differentiation. We farm at 500 meters above sea level and 45 kilometers from the southern tip of Africa where the shores are battered by these incredibly cold oceans, particularly the Atlantic, which swirls around and mixes with the Indian Ocean. The Atlantic has come up with the Benguela current from Antarctica, so the seas are really cold. And of course, as Africa warms up and the air rises, it sucks in these seaborne breezes, and unlike California where it's all misty, these come rushing in with huge force and energy, and they're very cold. So every day at about eleven o'clock, someone switches on a big air conditioning unit. So often the warmest temperature and the hottest months of the southern tip South of Africa are up until eleven o'clock in the morning and then the temperature starts dropping. So it's counterintuitive because the, the sun beating down is, is more direct later in the day, but the air come on. And that allows you to grow grapes. The altitude also helps, of course. Um, It allows you to to grow grapes that then provide you with this unmistakable mountain-born crunchy red fruit for your red grapes. And then with white grapes, this incredible elegance and length. It's one of the hallmarks of the Agalis wine triangle. We found right in the very middle of it. But if you look at all the wines from the, the Agalis wine triangle, there is this one sort of seam of gold which travels through all the wines. And you can Discern on all of them, red or white, and it's this elegance and length. It's a combination. Often you can get wines with intense elegance, but they come across slightly watery because there's no flavor with the acid at the end of them. With wines from the Aguilar's Triangle, you, you not only get elegance in these beautiful, soft, silky, cool climate tannins, more akin to what you would expect in Europe, but you get this incredible length, which means that the acid at the back of your palate has flavor to it and weight to it. And with that sensation, of course, comes this wonderful Moorish element, which makes the wine so beautifully balanced. What happens is that when winds come in off the sea, depending on where they go, what angle they come in, and how they deflect them off the different mountain ranges, means that you've got these little pockets of heat and little pockets of cold. And those can be 20 kilometers away from each other. It's unheard of. There's nowhere else in the world. Nowhere else in the world that has that. The other thing is that we've got more wind, volume of wind, speed of wind, wind days, meters per second, when I talk about wind speed, than any other country in the world. And this mostly happens from just after flowering, although some of the later varieties get caught with this wind. But this is because of how Africa reacts, right? Because of this huge, massive, dry continent that sits above us. And that means that... You know, not only do things change over very short distances, but they change very quickly during the day. Which means a lot of the, like the Winkler system of heat hours and things to determine what will ripen and what won't ripen. You've got to throw that out the window and start again.
2: So farming with the wind is almost our most important factor of our terroir. We really have to think every time of what will be the effect of the wind. Row direction is crucial to minimize the damaging effect of the wind on your young shoots in the growing season. But also row direction is crucial to use the cooling effect of the wind from the ocean during this warm summer months. So the same wind is the main reason why this area has got a cool climate. It's the proximity of the oceans because we are on the southern tip of the triangle. We get the wind coming straight off the oceans, whether it's an east wind or a west wind. So we do have a big maritime influence on the cooling effect of the wind. And the other effect of the wind is we always boast about our small yields. That's the price we pay for these winds because they really affect the yields on our vineyards. We even named our famous flagship white wine, Adamastor, after the sea god of wind and storms because it's got such a big influence on our viticulture. When we started off way back in 2002, we still didn't know a lot about the area. We knew that there were some challenges with the type of soils we were working in, because this is extreme terroir from the soil. You've got very lean gravel, stony gravel soils, not too deep, often less than 40 millimeters of, of gravel before you get onto the clay. The choice of rootstocks was limited at that stage. People used what they knew about Stellenbosch and other areas, but this was a new territory that we explored. And also what row direction to use and should we reach the soils or not reach the soils. So these are all the things that at those days the consultants told you, we think you should use this rootstock and this clone and you should reach the soil and this is the row direction. And that's what we did. And over the years, I've been here now for 16 years. We've learned quite a few interesting things that, so as like that rootstock is very important. We find that the US 87, which is a US Davies subclone, works very well in our type of soils, which is high salinity, gravel. There's drought in the summer. We do have supplementary irrigation. So planting the vines and Moving away from soils that are close to the water source, but going to look for your deepest gravel. That's what we're doing now when we start new vineyards. We move away from the first plantings and looking for gravel that's in excess of 750 to 1,000 millimeters deep before we get onto the clay. Changing the wind direction to suit the main seasonal winds. So in the summer, it's an east wind, and the winter is a west wind. So we get minimum... Wind damage into our canopies and maximum airflow through our windrows with the wind. So, these are all the small little things that we've picked up. I don't want to go too much into too much detail about trellising systems and height of the trellis system, but what I can say is that in 16 years' time, we've rewritten the book on viticulture in cool climate, windy areas with extreme terroir in the southern of the country. It's not what you do in the traditional warm areas. Uh, it's different. And we're starting to see the rewards on, on what we are doing.
0: In each corner of the triangle, producers are focusing on different varieties based on what works best given their combination of temperature, wind, soils, and other
1: conditions. We need to, to be safe with our money. But at the same time, we need to do things that would differentiate this property. And so the two questions were, what would you do if you had lots of money and you wanted to do the safe thing? And I listed the varieties and the normal stuff. And he said, okay, what is on the edge of that? So every variety that I'd put down, he said, okay, what do you think might ripen three years out of five on the farm? And as a result, be able to produce extraordinary different wines. And so things like within that Bordeaux basket, there would be Malbec with Shiraz, which needs heat, but can perform in the Northern Rome. Nothing really in Portugal you should plant. But if you did, maybe Turriga Franca from the Giro because of its florality and the red crunchy fruit that it gives ports. And then a bit of Turriga Nacional because it's one of the greatest varieties in the world. And then whatever you do, don't plant Barbera. Nobody likes Barbera. Not even the people who make Barbera like Barbera, really. So I made that list and he said, that's who you plant. And it was a huge risk for him. It was a reputational risk for me. But we planted in the year 2000, and we planted Malbec, Cool Climates, Northern Rhone, Shiraz clones. We planted Pinot Noir, like any obsessive winemaker, a wine nerd would do, given half the chance. We planted Barbera. We planted Tariga Franca, Tariga National. Tinta Barocca. Oh, my God, what were we thinking? And they all work. I can't believe they all work. What we should have done because it was so cold was plant white varieties. That would have been a sensible, safe thing to do. We didn't plant any white varieties. We wanted this to be a 100% cool climate, red grape farm at altitude on the southernmost mountain range in Africa, which we knew because of that would differentiate it completely from anything else in South Africa, if not the world.
0: In the southernmost areas of the triangle, Sylvian Blanc has been the flagbearer variety for Elam and Cape Agulhas from the very beginning.
2: The cultivars on the white side that express themselves best in this area, to my mind, is Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, and to a lesser extent Vionir. The Sauvignon Blanc grape variety is really one of the most vigorous grapes varieties that I've worked with. It can handle a beating from the worst windstorms. It can handle salty air, it's got tough leaves. And with all those conditions, it can still, in a very short span between coming into the veraison and ripening in a four week period, it can go into producing fantastic flavors in a cool climate. And if you've got those blocks that you can pick at optimum ripeness, that I've experienced with where you just have a Southeast slope, where you can just hang on a little bit longer to get to a little bit higher sugar level, then you really get that combination of full ripeness with still that tight acidity, because that's, again, back to the low pH soils, the high fertility, gravel soils. They bring in a, a low pH into our wines and a nice natural acidity. Sauvignon Blanc is definitely the business card of this area. Semillon on the other side... We know that some of the best semilons over a couple of years has been produced out of the Gullis wine area. We've got the new right clones planted on the right rootstocks. And these clones give us ripeness at the lower sugar level, at a lower acidity. And these just make elegant wines that can age and just become better and better. Semillon is definitely something that you can look out for I think most of our prominent Sauvignon Blancs produced in this area has got a component of Semillon in it. There's only a few that's straight Semillon. I think David Nivot from Ghost Corner, he's got a proper bowline Semillon that he produces. But in most other cases, it's used as a blending component. In my first sighting Sauvignon Blanc, there's 12 to 15% of the blend every year. In my Strangfeld Adamastor. It's a 50-50 blend between Sauvignon Blanc and Seminon, a white Bordeaux blend. So you can already see the aging potential of Seminon really adds to our souvenir Blanc. So that's why it's so important. About three years ago, I found that some of my Vionier grapes were so good couldn't resist not to blend it into my Navigator Red blend. And I just wanted to show the world out there what does cool climate Vionier looks like. So in 2017, we bottled a few bottles of Vionier just for the tasting room. We did very well. And uh, it followed up with 18. Currently, we are selling the 2019 Vionir. And I'm very excited about the prospect of Cool Climate Vionir. And uh, I know Hannes, the winemaker at Lomont, is also looking at at showing the world a 100% Cool Climate Vionir from Lomont. It's not as fashionable maybe as souvenir Blanc, but it's very interesting for the people out there who want to taste something different. Flavor profiles of white wines. We can't compare ourselves to the Loire, but on the right soil types, on the quartz gravel soils, we do have that flinty minerality that they refer to. But going into the coffee clip, iron ferricry, gravel, shale mixture that we have here, the galas, especially the Elam wine, which shows much more like a gunflint minerality that's really very typical. I I refer to it as the fingerprint of our wines that stand out. It's strong. It's like a lightning bolt. When you've tasted an Elim Sauvignon Blanc, that minerality that you taste is different from other wines in other areas. And that runs right through. It combines a bit of salinity if you go into a single vignette wine, like the puff souvenir Sauvignon Blanc, it's going to run into it. If you've been biting into a piece of oyster shell, like a slight salty, chalky mineral feeling that you get from the sea. So when we refer to minerality in our wines in this area, that these are all the words that you can use to describe them. But when you taste them, okay, yes, this is different. And even in a blind tasting sitting somewhere in the world, you're going to say, okay, this is not New Zealand. This is not the Loire. And where else do they make proper Sauvignon Blanc? Then, yeah, she raises a cultivar that I've had the opportunity to work with in South Africa from my birth town of Durbanville, one of origin, into the Swartland Darling and Stellenbosch and the Robertson Valley. And it's really one of the grape varieties that can show the area where it grows very well. She raises a very vigorous grape. So if you plant it in two fertile soils, you've got to really tame the growth and it can yield high yields. And if you bring it into an area where these factors that I mentioned before, the wind that reduces the growth and gets your berries down in size, it gets the skin thicker. So you've got more tannin, then shiraz really expresses the terroir quite well. And the other thing about shiraz is that if it grows in these cool climates, you've got the ratundan the pepperiness that really stands out. And that's why our Asuraza stands out without me interfering too much. With minimal oak interference, i found that we've got enough tannin. I don't want to over-extract to make big extraction wines. I want to show people elegance, ripe tannins with a lot of pepper flavors. That comes naturally and that expresses the terroir. Then there's the final touch on these wines when you taste them is that Salinity, David refers to it as a wet slate and salty, we all know that. So these are the flavors that stands out that gives our our wines a special expression, especially the Shirazes and then going to other Rhone varietals Moverwe benefits from the long ripening season between and hanging out there and not getting beaten up by heat waves to ripen but rather sit there so, a moverdre is normally harvested at the lower sugar balling but in the years that we have a nice dry autumn, we do get fantastic ripeness on the moverdre. It is a challenge in the wet years, but what's life without a challenge? And then on the other run will Grenache. I know Grenache does very well in arid dry conditions. In South Africa, in the Swartland, where I fell in love with Grenache when I was still a winemaker in Darling, but coming south here into the very strong maritime influence and with soils, I found that Grenache really loves this area. It loves the high light intensity we have here. It loves the low yielding gravel soils that we've got here because Grenache is a prolific grape if you plant it in. It will make these huge bunches that doesn't have color and tannin and structure. But the moment you give it a bit of struggle, nature gives you normally natural small berries with a very interesting tannin structure, that ripe sweet fruit flavor that you can only get from Grenache. So I think... It's just the beginning of Grenache. There's very limited plantings of Grenache in the Agalas wine triangle. But I think in years to come, it will definitely become one of the more important cultivars. I use Grenache in my first sighting. It's a very important blending component of about 12%. It just changes the wine completely. I use it in my and Navigator, my flagship red wine. It's normally about 25%. And I also use it in my first sight in rosé, where it's almost 40%. So you can see it's a cultivar like in the rest of the world where there's Grenache. It's not always mentioned, but it's a workhorse. It's a cultivar that just brings in the difference into whatever you're doing. And that's why I like it.
0: In Malhas, Trafford is working with some varieties that Bruce Jack and the wineries down in Elam have embraced, but has also made some different choices of his own, including planting South Africa's flagbearer variety, Chenin Blanc.
3: We basically have a clean slate here. There aren't other vineyards too close, the closest being Elam. But it's quite a bit cooler there, and they've specialized in Sauvignon Blanc and Syrah really to some extent, and and Semillon here is a little bit warmer than Elam. And my idea was really to plant Mediterranean varieties that were warmer climate and really quite drought-adapted varieties that could withstand drier conditions. So we looked at the sort of best varieties from Southern Europe, from Portugal, from Spain, Southern France, and Italy. And for our red blend, it was really Syrah, Tariga Nacional from Portugal, Tempranillo. And we couldn't really decide on anything suitable from Italy. And then for the white blend, Chenin Blanc is just such a signature grape in South Africa that it seemed sensible to stick to that as a sort of a base variety. And then added to that Roussan and Viognier from the Rhone Valley. And more recently, we've planted some Verdello now and a little Vermentino as well. So that hasn't come into production. It was really looking at the future, looking at climate change and trying to plant varieties that would be warmer climate varieties in a cooler area, essentially. And I would say as well, just to add in terms of style, concentration is what we get very naturally here. And I think, especially since she started with us and we built a winery here at the vineyard and started with us in 2015, she's added a more kind of elegant touch to the wines. And increasingly, that's, I think, really positive direction that, that we're getting this natural concentration. But... And a more elegant style that's really encouraging and i think we're starting to plant a little bit more and add to it with the vines getting a bit older and finding what really works we're planting a little bit more of what's working better and so on so we are fine-tuning it and starting to get some elegance and greater complexity especially when the wines are a bit younger initially I think we really needed 10 or 12 years for the wines to show
2: themselves.
4: Our main focus, at saying, is to create the best white blend and best red blend. The white would always be Chenin-based. I'd say 65% plus Chenin Blanc. And then whatever, Pionier, Roussan, and recently we've added some vedello, And then we'll decide what to do with the Pionier, since that can be quite a powerful grape. I think Shannon is such a versatile grape it's found in so many places so I think it's a wonderful grape to be working with and people are doing incredible things with it you know and definitely starting to become the South African signature but it's saying firstly in the vineyards they're growing so well and viticulturally it's really nice to work with and it's one of the easier things to work with in the vignette. I think it's a good base to work with. I think the acidities are definitely picking up more. <laughs> it's starting to look really good. And the rusan definitely gives more your, for me, rooibos tea. I definitely <laughs> always pick up that character when I taste it and smell it. And on the palate, it has an oily texture. So I think texturally in the blend, it definitely adds character to it. And in the vignette, beautiful grape, but as I said, you know, quite a powerful tool that you can really use to your advantage. And here we want to put everything into our white blend. But I think that's definitely one of the bigger ones that we have to fine tune, but it's beautiful. It gives lovely, those white stone fruits, white flowers. So, aromatically, I think it definitely adds to the blend. So, yes, I would say Viognier and the Roussan, aromatically on the nose and that's their contribution. <laughs> and in the shenan it's the, the backbone of the blend.
3: Especially this year, we really thought seriously about just doing shenan, not adding the other components. We did decide to reduce the viognier a little bit, and it did seem better to add the other components as well. But when we planted initially and the initial concept, shenan isn't as aromatically interesting or not as pronounced as, mm-hmm. say, Souvenir Blanc, for example, and certainly not Viognier. The idea with the Viognier was to add that kind of aromatic lift. And I think in general, that's the kind of idea with a lot of Chenin-based blends. But I think we find on these stony soils, the Chenin is quite aromatic, mm. or certainly a little more aromatically interesting than what I work with in Stellenbosch. So there's a little less need to add the components, but Mm -hmm. I still think they make the wine a little better. It's just, as Charlotte says, the Viognier can dominate a little bit and take away from some of the finer nuances Mm -hmm. of the wine. And the Videla looks quite exciting. Mm -hmm. That's a newer kind of addition in the vineyard. And that was more added to increase the acidity, but we're starting to find... As the vines get older, like Charlotte mentioned, the acidity in the Shannon is pretty good and, mm. and, and quite high. We're needing the, <laughs> the, the Viognier less as a sort of <laughs> acidity component. But at all different and, and maybe in some vintages the Vidella is gonna be the thing that we really need yeah. to help the wine. It gives us more options, which is great.
4: <laughs> and the red Syrah based or is Syrah based also about 60% and then the Tariga, trinkadera, Morvede and very exciting. The Grenache that we'll add pretty soon, a bit of Tempranillo, but always Syrah based.
2: We, we're
3: really excited about our Grenache. We got our first crop last year and I think it's potentially a great grape for South Africa. You can get a higher yield of quality f- fruit for the same litres or rainfall mm-hmm. and so on. We haven't had the best quality plant material. So for our vineyard, Grenache looks like an obvious choice. But we waited until we had better plant material available. And I think that's probably true for other producers as well. So I think, especially in the Swartland and areas like that, where there's not a lot of rainfall and it's quite hot, I think Grenache looks, looks a very exciting variety. And I think people are also quite keen on that sort of style with a lighter color, less tannins. And and I think there are already some quite exciting wines. I think the potential looks good. With climate change and our water situation and so on, it looks like potentially a a great grape for South Africa. I don't think it's going to take over, but it's certainly something that's going to be of increased interest. Grenache is the Grape of Chateau Neuf de Pape.
4: A driving force. It's the kind of <laughs> driving
3: force. Yeah. We didn't want to just copy another wine region. That's typically what's happened in the New World. You have Bordeaux blends that are only mm. judged by how they look compared to the original I was more influenced by a wine like, for example, Chateau Musar in Lebanon, which is completely unique. There's this kind of Cinso and Cabernet and mm. a few other things. So. It doesn't really matter what's actually in the wine. It's actually more the Bordeaux concept of growing whatever is best for your particular spot, and then each vintage you put together your blend based on what does particularly well that year.
0: It's not often that you get to talk about Tariga Nacional, Barbera, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chenin Blanc all in the same conversation, but that just speaks to a typically South African experience, the range of different growing conditions you can find just kilometers from each other. Still, the region isn't just a grab bag, as we've seen, and the people making the wines there have something in common as well.
4: I think the fact that we're all a bit more way out, when I had to go to Bruce the first time, I was like, where on earth is this place? I missed the turn off like a hundred (laughs) times. But I wouldn't say stylistic, I don't think that's necessarily similar. I went to read our logo again and it just says pioneers, people doing things a bit more way out and not in the areas that people know. And wind, that was definitely also one of the things, The common factor. um,
3: It's quite a vast region, Mm. so there's still quite big differences between us. I think Elam is in a way, the sort of core or the center of the region. But we're still, what, 70 kilometers away. But I would say that sort of freshness and maybe a vibrant sort of mm. character to the wine would be perhaps a thread that holds us together in terms of the wine.
2: It's special because of the maritime influence and the stories that goes with the different terroirs. If you look at the terroir of Malchus, where David planted his vines with those pudding stones, vineyards, soils that were formed there by an ancient river that was so big that he's farming on Old Riverbank and going into the western side at Lomont, where they're also farming on the escarpment, which was way back. Coffee club gravel mixtures, the same as we have here in the southern tip. These are ancient soils, ancient, and they are not maritime soils. They are soils that come from continent. It's it's not if you go into the Loire where we pick up fossils of shells and things like that. These soils are over 500, 400 million years old. They are very old and very bare and barren. So you have to break them open and get out of them the secret of nature that's hidden in them. And once you start planting a new vineyard on a new piece of soil like that, you don't know what you're going to get out of it. But that's the excitement of exploring a new terroir. I think that is why this whole triangle, the Southern Triangle, is exploring a new terroir that has never been charted before.
0: We always like to talk to a U.S. sommelier at the end of these podcasts to get their impression of the wines. And this time I called up Amber Rill. And Amber is the assistant beverage director at Cork Buzz in New York City and actually came down to South Africa in September of 2019 as part of our sommelier cup trip that year. Amber, how are you?
5: I'm wonderful. Thank you so much. Wonderful to see you, Jim.
0: You too. You came down in in September 2019, as I said. And before that, what was your impression of South African wines?
5: I had a really great impression of South African wines. I had started a love affair almost congruently with my studying of wines in general of the world, but I had really come to want to visit South Africa just through a love of travel prior to discovering the wines. And when I began to discover the diversity of the wines within the region, how the quality of the wines and the value versus how much you were spending on them, I really had a a pretty high impression, I would say, going down there.
0: Oh, good. So it wasn't a surprise when you got down there and the wines, I, I assume, lived up to the hype?
5: They did. Not just the wines, too, but I think, obviously, having tasted many of the wines, especially because I'm in New York City, it's a wonderful opportunity to see a lot of these, especially smaller producers that are really, I think, driving the quality and some of the enthusiasm about South Africa wine. But for me, going down there and seeing, of course, just the beauty of the landscape, but also the energy of the people that are driving the wine community within the place. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you mentioned the landscape, and the landscape is actually quite diverse, just as the wines are. And I think there's definitely a connection there. Did you see that when you were there?
5: A hundred percent. There were days where I was wearing a tank top and sunscreen, (laughs) and days where I was bundled up in boots and a jacket. And also within within the same day, you would have these sort of extremes of temperature. And we spent so much time traveling through the different wine regions within the winelands of South Africa and going from closer to the coast to further inland, like Stellenbosch and Parle and Franchuk. You definitely see that. And there's nothing better for a sommelier or any wine enthusiast in the world than to go to a place to stand with your feet in the Fienbos and feel the Cape Doctor and have that moment of being like, oh, okay, this is real. This is what this is. This is the reason for these wines coming from this place. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a little bit unfortunate that the place we're going to be talking about today is an area that we didn't get to visit on that trip. But this is a really exciting area. And I'm not sure if with the tastings, you got to explore any of the wines from this area, even if we didn't visit during the trip.
5: So we actually did, I know, when we were staying at the Vineyard Hotel outside of Cape Town, we did a few tastings there with kind of overall wines of South Africa. And I was actually very happy when some of the wines that stood out to me at that particular tasting in 2019 arrived at my door.
0: <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, well, we should just dive in then. I think the first wine you have is one of the area's specialties, which was the Sauvignon Blanc, and that's the Lomond
5: from the Cape Agolis area. What do you think of this wine? I think, first off, you have to just talk about Sauvignon Blanc. And maybe this is just being in New York. And obviously, my exposure to wine is so different than anybody else's exposure to wine. Everybody has their own experience. But South Africa grows so much Sauvignon Blanc. It really is a grape that they've come to rely on. And in the Cape Agoulas, you have so much beautiful Sauvignon Blanc coming from this particular area and I was really pleasantly surprised with this wine. Now, I did a couple of things with these wines. One is that I opened all of them yesterday. And actually, the first wine is under a screw cap. The second two are under cork. So I in the two red wines and tasted them. And I thought, you know what? I need to open these up. These need to be open. They need to sit. I want to see how they show today and tomorrow. The second thing I did was that I poured a glass of each to have with my dinner last night. So I could also see how the wine would interact with food. And now I also have the wines today, so I think it's a fun opportunity to talk about how these wines were with food and how they were one day to the next. So when I opened the Lomond last night, it certainly is a Sauvignon Blanc that screams of the cooler climate, and I got a lot of these really great kind of green herbs, fresh tender spring vegetables like pea shoots and snap peas and tendrils and things like that. Definitely you have a little bit of that sort of currant bud that we like to talk about coming from Sauvignon Blanc and a lot of really beautiful minerality to this wine, certainly. Now, when I'm tasting it today, some of that pungency that I experienced yesterday has softened, which I actually really enjoy. I think more of the minerality, a slight florality to the wine had really come through today. I think when I was drinking this wine last night, I don't think I would have been able to drink a lot of it without food. But as I approach it today, it it feels a little bit softer on the palate, a little bit more for maybe sipping without having to have a meal with it.
0: I I think that's very typical for Sylvain Blancs to this area where they have that pungency, as you say, but there is that minerality, but sometimes the wine needs to unwind a little bit before you actually see it because they can be tight and racy.
5: Absolutely. And I did get 2020. So you can feel that this wine, it was made, it went into the bottle and it's taking a big breath of air as it's coming out from its slumber. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. Now, the first red we have, in the lineup, was from one of their neighbors. So a little bit more inland in the Elam Ward proper. And that's the Stronfeld. And now we're talking about a red variety, but again, grown in that same cool, windy environment. What was that like?
5: Out of all the wines, I think they all show great. This wine just really, it sings. It really does. Mm-hmm. So when I opened this last night, I did notice that there was a little bit of reduction, which is common for the Syrah grape. But it was still pretty immediately warm and open. It had a lot of really beautiful dark fruit characteristics to it. One of my favorite things about grapes that are grown and wines that are made in cool climates is that they often celebrate things about wine that are not about fruit. And I think that this wine is a really wonderful example of that. It really is a celebration of those other aromas and flavors that you get in Syrah. So we mm. have that smell and the aroma of bacon fat drippings falling onto coals. If you're like barbecuing <laughs> in your backyard, you get a little bit of this black olive tapenade. There is a really nice kind of eucalyptus character to it. And there was a little smoky, almost flintiness that came from the sort of reductive character that the wine had. Now, this particular wine, when I had it with dinner, blew my mind. I had quarantine dinner last night, which means <laughs> like, what's in the fridge? So it ended up being a seared duck breast, some roasted sweet potatoes, and then a lot of little plates of mepsi that we had in the fridge. So I had some Lebanese ricotta and some kind of roasted red pepper dip to go with the wine. We had some dolmas, and this wine went with everything. There was nothing that the wine did not complement on the table. Mm. And now today, it's even incredibly more complex than it was yesterday. That reduction has blown off, so I don't really get that smoke and flint characteristic, but it's replaced by a little bit more of this aromatic flower petal fine characteristic, I guess you would say, about the wine. It's like sarsaparilla and a little bit more of this smoked meat characteristic. I really think I could go on. I love this wine. <laughs> I'm really enamored by this wine, and especially because of the price. I think that this is such a wonderful opportunity, if you were somebody who loved Syrah, you could explore Syrah or Shiraz from all corners of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could compare those terroirs, those climates, those winemaking styles, and you could probably compare four or five of them for under $100, which is such a yeah. such <laughs> fantastic value in the world of wine, especially to get something really of this intensity and this complexity for that price.
0: Yeah, Definitely. So we have one other wine, and now we're going to leave that southernmost Cape Agulhas Elam area, and go up the coast. So we're going further east, but a little bit further north. And this is from Malhas, and this is the Seine. And you had the red blend, the 2015, I think, right?
5: Personally, I'm really excited to have a blend here. I love the blends of South Africa, and this wine is the pinnacle of why. You have this nation that's a blend of Cultures and ethnicities and language and cuisine and ideology. And it's really fun to see that we're allowing one of the wine styles to reflect that, I think, because not Mm -hmm. only do we have a blend of grapes in this wine, we have a blend of grapes that in other parts of the world where they're grown, you wouldn't even find in the same country together, let alone hundreds of miles near each other. I know there's mostly Syrah. In this mm-hmm. wine, but we've got Portugal, France, and Spain all coming into the mix in this particular wine, which I think is really fascinating when we think about the origin of these grape varieties. So the fact that you have a winemaker that's adept enough to take these grapes and create this blend out of them is really interesting. One of the things that I thought about while tasting these wines is in New York, we have a a bad habit when it comes to wine. And we tend to herald younger producers. And one of the things I love about South Africa is we have all these young producers that are obviously ushering in a lot of change who are really entrepreneurial, who are experimental, but so are the old guard. The old guard is equally excited about finding these new terroirs, about creating Mm -hmm. these new wineries and these blends of wine but we should also probably talk about the flavor. This wine was the one that when I corven the wine first, this made me want to open them because the aroma was really beautiful. It had this really bitter chocolate, these wild herbs, this fennel, this anise, kind of mixed brambly fruit to it. But when I tasted it on the palate, it was a little bit closed off and I couldn't really shake that tightness that it had. So I really thought that these wines should be opened and have an opportunity to be exposed to air. This wine was pretty equally as well with the things that I enjoyed last night for dinner, but not quite as well as the Syrah did. But today when I'm having this wine again, it really has opened up on the palate. It's much softer. It doesn't have some of the austerity that it had yesterday when I tried it for the first time. And you get a lot of this really beautiful sweet spice character that really comes from the wine. A lot of these nice herbal characteristics that show the wine really well. I would happily drink this wine. I would pour probably any of these wines really by the glass at Cork Bed when we reopen. Mm. We love pouring South Africa wine by the glass. We usually have at least one.
0: I, for one, I'm looking forward to Cork Buzz being open for exactly that again. And once that happens, I'll be glad to come in and grab a glass of any of these wines or, or any other South African wines you're showing off because you guys always do a great job with them.
5: We have some fun things in our cellar, including some older vintages of Memento, like 2014 Ooh. right now, some of Hannah Storm's wines, some fun stuff coming from down that area. More than that, but some cool stuff.
0: I hope you enjoyed our look at the wines of the Gauls Triangle this episode. You can find more resources and links to the Agullus Triangle website and the websites of the producers we talked to at wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends or go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we're going to celebrate Women's History Month by talking to a few of South Africa's many women winemakers. We'll be jumping around and looking at wines from several different regions, touching on some of the most exciting trends in South African wine today.